Hey there, you are listening to a podcast from the Christian Campus House at the University of Central Missouri. Our mission is to journey with students as they discover and build a deeper relationship with Jesus. And so we hope that our recorded teachings help you discover or build a deeper relationship with Jesus. Enjoy. Drank a soda 
through my friend's sock. So that, that he had been wearing. That he, he oh. took off his sock. And he put it over a soda, and it's for the game. Okay, now switch sodas, and then now you have to chug it. And it was for a, I think a twenty-five dollar Xbox game card. So I, it was worth it. It was worth it. It was motivation. So okay. Two weird things. Bonus. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. We can't do those today. I, I don't think it would be frowned upon in your book if we were. Okay. Well, I think that's fair. So that I just wanted you guys to know that that's who you're hearing from today is a guy Spreading. who's eaten a banana through pantyhose and drank soda you're gonna uh, through right his friend's <laughs> sock. So, Nick Hatfield, everybody. Perfect. Awesome. <laughs> All right. So, I hear that you guys are going through the book of Hebrews. Um, I would say it's probably my third <coughs> favorite book of the Bible. Um, that I've numbered the books of the Bible in my favorites. Uh, the first one would have to be James, the book of James, and then probably, I know James, I got you. Uh, then the next one would probably have to be Romans, and then definitely Hebrews. Um, but I have been tasked with a very interesting chapter, if you will, chapter 7. And so um, before we get into like all of that, I, I want to, we're going to talk about Jesus, as we should, right? But we're going to be talking about that there's a lot of people that say Jesus is this, where maybe that's not truly accurate, um, that I want to get that out of the way. Let's talk about who Jesus is not. Like, let's, let's start with who is Jesus, uh, who is he not? And so the first thing that comes to mind is that Jesus is not just this white face, like a uh, baby face with little beard, like minimal, like nothing like just this weird <laughs> very man baby ish figure that a lot of the renaissance people um they came up with this image of jesus to to make it appealing to the multitude if you would that th that they wanted everyone to see jesus as like king like he would be someone that you would see on a throne somewhere that he was well off that he was clean shaven where everyone at the time would be not so and so he was labeled as that but that's not who jesus is in the slightest of a baby face jesus um, but jesus also is not a just a mural i don't know if you guys it was a meme a while back but there's this mural yeah there it is uh that a lady met well okay uh this old lady she was 87 she saw the first picture the top picture of uh jesus painted and i think it was brazil um in their church and she would walk by it every day, and people were kissing the face of Jesus, and it was very well done. It's a famous painter. I'm sorry, I can't remember it. Uh, for you art majors, I can't. Um, but there was this image, and so she took it upon herself with no artistic ability, as you can tell, and she tried to flesh out what Jesus would look like, and then it came down to that's what the painting looks like now. And so that's definitely, not, whatever that is, that's not Jesus. Like, that old lady meant well, but that is definitely not Jesus. Uh, her name was Donna Gomez, and so if you want to give her flack, you should probably look her up. Um, but anyways, uh, Jesus also is not Arnold Schwarzenegger, like just this buff, red, like buff Jesus, right? Like I would love to see Jesus like that or uh, drinking the games, if you will. Uh, but he was not that type of Messiah. That A lot of times in Scripture, whenever we're reading it, the Jewish people were looking for a Messiah, right? And the Messiah that they were looking for was someone that was going to come and overthrow the kingdoms that they know. And so as a Jewish person, and you're like looking forward to the Messiah, you're like, oh man, the Romans are going to get theirs, right? That they're, He's going to come in, he's going to clean house, and he's going to make sure that the right, the, the wrongs 
But actually, that's not what Jesus the Messiah was all about. Like, he was about ushering a new kingdom, not an earthly kingdom, but a heavenly kingdom. But he was a king in a different way, if you will. And then Jesus, uh, he was not a basketball player either. Like, I just enjoy this image of crossing over Satan or a <laughs> demon or something. Uh, but I, I know that Jesus didn't play basketball. There's no scripture that references it. But I don't know. Maybe he did. Uh, but although most of those are laughable of like, okay, we know Jesus is none of those things. But who is Jesus truly? Like, who is he really? Like, not just to you as a person, but also like in scripture. Who is Jesus? Because it's one of the most important questions that you will ever answer in your life of who is Jesus, not just to you, but also in scripture, how we get there. But before we jump into Hebrews chapter 7, I want to look at uh, something that's very important, very close to my heart that I didn't tell you about myself. Um, I love conspiracies. Does anyone else a conspiracy theory person? Like, I, I love conspiracy theories. If it's a little bit more outlandish, the better. Like, I listen to podcasts. I listen. I've even read the CIA's, like, redacted, like, the, the reports that they released and things that, that's now not classified. They've unclassified. I'm that big of a, I don't know what you would call me, a nerd, I guess. Uh, but I love conspiracy theories. And so with that, whenever you watch someone's, like, recanting of I saw a UFO, right? And they always get the most ridiculous people for those interviews, right? Like, it's never just a normal person. It's just someone outlandishly that they're interviewing. But with that, every time that I watch, I've watched a lot of uh, accounts, but whenever they recount what they have saw, everyone does the same thing, every single one of them. They use something that is known, that they know, they, knew, they, they use something that's familiar to not only them, but everyone, to explain something that they're not very familiar with. That they, they use something that they know about to explain something that they don't know about. And so whenever you're looking at UFO files or when people are recounting, they're like, it looked like a white Tic Tac. Like, we all know what a Tic Tac looks like. And so they're explaining it in that way. Or it took off like a bolt of lightning. Like, that's how they typically talk. Whoa. But with that, they use things that we know about or that common knowledge that we get. Like, we, we, we know what those things are about. And we see the author of Hebrews doing that. And so... Uh, Grant, have you said who the author of Hebrews is yet? Like, have you dropped no, who it is? No, you want to drop uh, names. Yeah, perfect. So uh, it's Paul. I'm just kidding. No, I don't know. Uh, but there's also speculation that it's John, um, that I've heard that John is also another one because there is the eternal mentioned multiple times throughout Scripture uh, in this Scripture, in this book. And so that's another thing that's like there's a conspiracy even around the book of Hebrews of like who wrote it. We're not so certain. We have ideas, uh, but there's even a conspiracy around that. But the author is doing the same thing, of using something that is familiar to people to explain more about Jesus. That, that he's trying to dive in more about Jesus and what he has accomplished and what and who he is, to give us a clear picture of who he is. So in chapter 7, we have encountered a man who is shrouded by theories. That I would say he is even a conspiracy theory himself. That we don't know a whole lot about it. Like, I've been talking a lot about uh, Melchizedek is his name that with like both my senior minister at Northside. I'm like, hey, man, like what what's with this dude? He's like, you know, I don't know a whole lot. We only got two scriptures to base it off of. So like even him, but along with all the other quoting and uh, the studying that I've had, there's not a whole lot 
of information that we gain of understanding of this guy named Melchizedek. Um, for just the time's sake, I'm going to call him Mel. All right, I don't want to say Melchizedek like a thousand times. So Mel is Melchizedek. Okay, you guys tracking with me? Okay, cool, awesome. Making sure you guys are still awake. So if you guys have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 14. We're going to look at the first time that we see this cat. Uh, so in Genesis chapter 14 is where we're going to be at. Um, and let me get you caught up to date while you're turning there of like the story so far in Genesis. So Abram, not Abraham yet, it's Abram, that he has, um, he's in the middle of a war, if you will. That there are multiple kings feuding and uh, going around and just essentially in war. And so while this is happening, um, Abram's nephew, Lot, is at the wrong place at the wrong time, if you will. That he is in Sodom, and the four kings have grouped up, and they're on a quest together, and they roll through Sodom, and they take everything and everyone. So they take Lot, Abram's nephew, captive. And Uncle Abram's like, uh-uh, this, is an, this ain't going to happen. And so he rounded up 318 people. So, like, he has his own mini army, if you will. And they wait until dark, and they go in, and they ransack this camp, and they don't leave anyone other than the people that have been captured, and they, they are coming back. It was a long trip there and a long trip back. But all on their way back, they kind of go a different route than they went, and they come to a kingdom. Um, and a king and prophet walk out from this kingdom, and they greet one another. So in Genesis chapter 14, verse 17, um, is where we're going to pick up. After Abram returned from defeating Kledemur, yeah, the king allied with him, the king of Sodom, came out to meet him in the valley of Sheba, that is the king's valley. When Mel, king of Sodom, brought his out, um, he brought out bread and wine. Very interesting. Again, just there's some things, subtle things that as we're reading this, you're like, oh, that's kind of like communion, right? Interesting. Okay. Uh, there's some other things that come up. Um, that he was a priest of God most high. So the same God that Abram is worshiping, he's also a priest and he's a king. And he blessed Abram saying, blessed be to Abraham and God the most high, creator of heaven and earth and praise be to God most high who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. A tenth, anyone noticing a tenth? Okay. Uh, the king of Sodom uh, said to Abram, give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, With raised hand I have sworn an oath to the Lord, God of most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread of a strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and share that belongs to the men who went with me. To these places. Anyways, they let them use or let them have their share. And so with that, whenever we look at this in this interaction, that's really all we have. Like this is the one story that we have of Melchizedek other than him being mentioned in, I think it's Psalm 110. And it says you are in the lineage or in the priesthood of Melchizedek. And so there's a lot of conspiracies shrouding Melchizedek or Mel that we don't know where he came from who his parents are, his genealogy, how he came to know God. I mean, again, we're following Abram in Genesis. And, like, there's so many questions. And we have no answers. Like, that's it. Moves on. Next story. Like, 
That's it. Mun and done. And so with this, the book of Hebrews in chapter 7, the author outlines, it kind of gives us a character study, if you will, of this character, Mel. And so I kind of outlined of the first section of uh, Hebrews chapter 7, 1 through 3, uh, Mel is a type of Christ that the book of Hebrews, the author is saying that Melchizedek is a type of Christ, that he was both king and priest, right? Like that, that's, that's unheard of, like either you're one or the other, you're, you're not both. And so that he was both king and yet priest, just as Christ is king and priest. And then Mel was greater than Abram, that Jesus himself is greater than Abram. Like he is the forefather of the Jewish people. Like they, he was like one of the highest people of sought after like, oh, it's Abraham. But here the author is saying, no, no, like Jesus is above Abraham. Like who you thought? No, no, Jesus is above him. And then Mel is his priesthood predated the Levitical priesthood. So the, the priesthood um, hasn't been established just yet for the Jewish nation. And so with that, that his priesthood is before the Levitical priesthood. And, and after all, he is the one that receives the 10% of Abraham's or Abram, excuse me, of all of his plunder. Like he is above the priesthood of the Levitical priesthood. So. That's who Mel was. That's how we see. That's all that we know about him. And that's what we have to go off with. But like, what does that have to do with Jesus? Like, how is this obscure figure tied to Jesus? And why is he kind of contrasted to Jesus? Well, it, it kind of fulfill, it all fulfills Mel priesthood. And it's where the Levitical priesthood lacked. It's where the things that we know of the old, it does, it's not making sense. It doesn't work. And so Jesus has now come into it, and it is now working. It, it shows up, Jesus shows up where the Levitical priesthood lacks, where it's missing. And so let's look in Hebrews chapter 7, verse uh, 23 is where I'm going to be at. So Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23. It says, Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever... He is the permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he is always he always lives to intercede for them. Verse 26, such a high priest truly meets our needs. One um, who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens, unlike the other high priests, that he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, First for his own sins and then for the sins of the people that he sacrificed for their sins once and for all whenever he offered himself for the law appoints as high priest men in all their weaknesses. But the oath of which came after the law appointed the son, Jesus, who has been made perfect forever. So there's there's a lot to unpack in these verses, but all that to say that Mel Melchizedek was a glimpse of someone greater. Like, if you hear anything, like, this is my dominant thought. This is what I want you guys to understand, that, like, Melchizedek was a glimpse of someone greater, and that's Jesus. A glimpse of something greater, and that's Jesus. We put the name to the someone, if you will. That he showed up where the priesthood was lacking, where the traditions were lacking. Jesus shows up for that. And so I am very, I love to 
exergete passages. So what that means is just like go through passages and just teach what it means and kind of historically a little bit. And so I'm going to kind of do that for the most part in verses 23 through 28, just to give you a little bit of context and kind of break it down a little bit more. And so when we see that Jesus' priesthood was not interrupted by death, so he is solidified, he solidified his, his priesthood in death, that he is still a priest. It's continuing on. It wasn't an end, just like all the other priests, that there was an end to their priesthood. Like it had to transition to someone else. That had to transfer to the next high priest. That Jesus was and still is the high priest. There's no transferring to the next person on down the line. And then in verse 25, that Jesus saves us completely, like in the complete sense. That there's no other higher regard. That Jesus saves us completely. There's nothing else to be done. There's nothing else to be had. That Jesus is the once and all for that. That it was more than just the minimal animal sacrifice to, to limp us through. Until God sent Jesus, the perfect sacrifice for us, that Jesus is the one and done, that there's no more need for shedding of blood for our sin, for our wrongdoings, for our missing the mark of what God wants for our life. That Jesus was it. And then in the second half of verse 25, we see that it wasn't just a past tense of salvation, that Jesus did save people, that Jesus is still actively saving today. Like, it, it shifts to the present tense. Like, it's still continuing on to the very day. And then in verse 26, the author goes in and gives us five ways that Jesus meets our needs for the high priest. Like, how he is exactly who we were waiting for and what we needed. That he is in harmony, that he is holy. What that means is he's in harmony with God. That he's not missing the lines of what God wants, but also the covenant that was made that he is in line, that he teaches, he talks, that he is in line, that he hasn't broken that covenant with God. He is the only one that has been able to keep that. And yet he sacrificed his own life for us so that we could have a relationship with God, that he is holy. But then he also goes on and says he's innocent, that he is someone without blame, that he is someone without evil intentions. He doesn't mean harm. He is someone that means good. He has good intentions for us, that he is innocent. But on top of that, he is undefiled, that Jesus is morally unstained. Again, that he's sinless, that he is, his purity goes beyond just ceremonially cleansed. So whenever the Jewish priest would go in and atone for the sins of the Jewish people, that there was this whole rigmarole that they had to go through. That they had, there was this one part that, that, that's noted in some scripture that they actually had to set themselves apart like seven days, give or take, a week from people, that they had to go off and live by themselves. So that way they would not touch anything unclean, that they would not talk to anyone or be around or touch anyone that was unclean, and then go in and atone for the sacrifices of man. Because again, God couldn't be where sin was, but yet they had to do their best of cleansing all of that out before he went into the inner sanctum, the inner of holies of holies, to make the sacrifice for the nation of Israel and all their sins. So with that, they, he had to be set apart, that Jesus was that. Like, he didn't have to worry about that. But it speaks to the next thing, that he was separated from sin. That's the next thing that the author mentions, that he was separated from sin, that he mingled with sinners, that he hung out with, that he ate with. That is unheard of. A holy man that is teaching the word of God, that eats with sinners. I mean, we see it time and time again, like, that's, that's just not what the priests did at that time. 
But yet Jesus is doing that. He's mingling. He's living life with the sinners, the people that have fallen short of the glory of God. And yet he still does not sin. He, he's not blemished by it. He, he doesn't partake in what they're doing and what they're saying and how they talk. That he is still separated from sin. But then also the last thing that the author uh, lists out is that he's exalted above the heavens. He's exalted above the heavens. So this is the this is a big point. Like he is with God. Like he is physically with God, interceding for us, where we can't we can't do that. Like we can't go to God and be like, hey God, this is why I messed up. Like, no, no, no. Like Jesus is doing that for us. He's interceding on our behalf. And so the author of Hebrews could have stopped there, and we would have been like, all right, cool. Thank you, God, for Jesus. That's amazing. But he, he's like, I'm not done yet. But wait, there's more. Right? In verse 27, he notes that Jesus was the atonement for sin. That He's so much so that there's no need for it to be repeated. Like, we don't have to have another sacrifice for our sins. That there's no need for shedding of blood for the wrongs of man. That Jesus was the fulfillment, the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And then, to close out the chapter, the author kind of calls out the Levitical priests, uh, but he, he just says it, how it is. Like, he, he's not making fun. He's just like, hey, this is the way that it is. That they, they were weak. Like, comparative to Jesus, the Levitical priests are weak. They don't stack up next to Jesus. Like, they're missing. And so, the, the thing is that it was just based on their lineage that they could become a priest. It's nothing that they have done. It's nothing that they have said. It's nothing that they have studied that is like, oh, you should be a priest now. Like, it's just like, oh, you were born in this family, so now you can be a priest. Like, that's just the requirement that was needed. And so, but Jesus is the perfect high priest and meets all the requirements. That if there was a list of things that, that we could see and needed, like, Jesus would fit all those boxes, would check all of those. And it's not just for that time period. Again, it's forever. He is still to date the perfect high priest that we have. He is the end all and be all. And that's the greatest news that we have, that we are supposed to be in all of this. Like, what are we supposed to do with this? Like, this is great that we can study verse by verse and see what the author's trying to talk about and meaning and some background to it. But like, what do we, what do we do with that? Like, as college students, what are you supposed to do with that information that Jesus is your perfect high priest? Because every time we come to scripture, it is calling you to action. It's calling you to do something. It's not just a good book to pick up and like, oh, that was a good food for thought today. Closing and walking away. That it calls you to do something. So what is scripture calling us to do? What is scripture calling us to know, to do, to be? Well, we have to look at one more verse. And it's a little bit further back. In 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, we see kind of what's what we are supposed to be doing and what, who we are, essentially, in light of Jesus being our perfect high priest, who are we? What, what are we supposed to do? Uh, Peter kind of goes into that in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 through 10. He's talking to the church. This church has been scattered that he's writing to, and so he's talking to the church. So that means you and me. That even though it's written to a specific group of people, it still applies to you and I today. So 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 through 10, it says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. Again, royal. A royal 
priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called on you in the darkness into the wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So the truth is, is that if you have called on the name of Christ, that you have followed Christ into the waters of baptism, that you profess that you are a Christian, you are a part of a priesthood. Probably never thought of that. <laughs> I know I never did uh, before. That I was like, oh, I, I am a part of a priesthood. Like, what is that? <laughs> what am I supposed to do with that? Well, he kind of goes in and he, he explains exactly what we are called to be doing. That if we are a part of God's holy nation, his priesthood, then we are serving the high priest. That there is a high priest and then there's priests. That we are a priest for God's nation, for God's people. Then Jesus is our high priest, but he's not just a high priest. He is the perfect high priest. Now, I have, I have, to, let, I have to let you know that growing up, I grew up in the church. Both sides of my grandparents were ministers, that they were teaching scripture for as long as I've ever known. So with that, I grew up going to church, knowing all the Bible answers and saying the right things when I needed to say it. But growing up, I always thought that like I needed to be perfect, like I needed to, to sin as less as possible, that I need to make sure that I am doing right, that I am following in Jesus' footsteps and I am perfect. I was seeking to be perfect. But it led me to see how flawed that I am. That time and time again, I messed up. I sinned. I, I fell short of the glory of God. And it's no surprise there. But a lot of times I had to change my thinking of like, God sent Jesus to be the perfect one. That you're not called to be perfect. That, that I can remember when this hit me. Like this thought, this train of thought of where I was, what I was doing, the smells. Like I remember everything whenever I realized that I wasn't called to be perfect. I was called to follow after Jesus. That it, is my salvation based on what I'm doing, how I'm acting, what I'm doing, where I'm going, wh how many times I go to church, how many answers I know? Like, is that what I'm basing my salvation on? Because that's what I was doing. But it hit me that my salvation is not based on those things. My salvation is based on Jesus Christ and his blood alone. That it's once I realized it, it's a literal weight was lifted from my chest. Like, I felt breath just come into my chest like I could breathe again that it's not this anxiety of me not doing everything that I'm supposed to be doing because I'm falling short of the glory of God and God's going to smite me at any moment but it's simply put it like I'm good I'm covered because of my perfect priest the one that intercedes on my behalf that goes to God and says hey Nick's good like I got him he's trying his best he's looking to be better each and every day that's our goal as Christians that we are called to be better than we were the day before. That it's not to be perfect. Only Jesus is perfect. We will never achieve perfect. I've already missed perfect by my first birthday. That we've all missed it. So don't seek perfection. Seek to be more like Jesus. The, the clear picture that we see in scripture. This example that we have. That Now this is not a, dis I need to disclose this, that this isn't just a, an example for you to be like, you know what? I am who I am, and God loves me for who I am, and that I don't have to change. Like, no, no, no. Every time we see Jesus interact with people, he, call, he meets them where they are, but then calls them to a higher standard. He calls them to something better, to something more. 
The same is true for our life, that God meets you where you are. But he's going to challenge you to be better, to be more, to follow after him, to look more like him each and every day. But that's important to know. But it's important to know that it's not our salvation based on what I do and what I accomplish, but it's based on what Jesus has done on the cross. And it's from that place that we then know what we're called to do. That, okay, I know that it's not me. I can't do enough good things to outweigh my bad. But it's because Jesus is the perfect priest. He intercedes for me. Now it gets into the second half of 1 Peter chapter 2, where he says, now go. Like, go and serve. That's exactly what we're called to do, that we have to not just sit on the sidelines and just not like, woohoo, go high priest. Like, no, we, we are in the game, that we are called to be a part of the game, to be a part of what God is doing, that we're called to serve, that God wants us to be a part of what he is doing in the world. Because I don't know if you know this or not, but we live in a messed up world, a world of darkness, of hate, of malice, that there's so many wrong things with this world. Now, granted, we're not going to go in and fix all of those things, but we could be a light. We could be a beacon that we could share the mercy that we have received. That in my sin, I had no hope. Like, what could I do? Nothing. But it was by Jesus that he stepped into my situation to save me from my sins. And with that understanding, with that mindset, that is why I go and serve. That is why I go and talk to people about Jesus and what he's done in my life. That's it's not that you have to have a theological degree in biblical scholarship to be able to talk about the Bible. It's simply put, is what is God doing in your life? How is he working? How is he acting? And simply just go talk about what God's doing in your life. It's not that you have to know all the ins and outs. But God has called us to serve, to share what we have experienced, to serve in the way of sharing the mercy that we have received by God through Jesus for our sins. That Jesus is the perfect high priest for us. That we are called to serve. And it's not just for ministers, for, for people that are uh, studied in that. But it's for you, that you are all a part of a priesthood. That you are called to serve, to teach, to tell others about what you have experienced. You are a part of a priesthood. So we are called to serve by sharing the, what the perfect high priest has done for us. In our life. So it's not just to know that Jesus is similar to Melchizedek, but better than Melchizedek. On top of that, we're called to serve because of that. We are so glad that you decided to listen to this teaching from the Christian Campus House. Join us live at our weekly gatherings on Wednesday nights at 7.30 p.m. during the school year. If you have questions or you want to talk about what it looks like to take the next step in your faith journey, email us at cch.digdeeper at gmail.com. That's cch.digdeeper at gmail.com. We hope to see you soon.